Hello, I'm Rolf Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, and today we are speaking with Julian Struber, a man currently at the University of Heidelberg, soon to be moving on to the University of Münster for a very interesting research project, and a man, importantly for our purposes today, who knows a thing or two about the current debate within the study of Western esotericism, about whether we should even be calling it Western at all, and what's all this Westernness about. So, Julian, thank you very much for appearing on the Schwepp. Well, thanks, Earl. I appreciate you having me. So, the start of my idea of doing this interview was at the recent SWE conference in Amsterdam. The kind of climactic episode of the conference, in fact, was this big panel where you had a bunch of quite prominent leading scholars of Western esotericism, including yourself, uh, Dr. Leanna Seif, who's been on the, the podcast before, um, Wouter Hanegraaf, and many others, maybe we should um, list their names in due course, discussing, should we drop the Western in Western esotericism? Should we just be talking about esotericism? I wonder if you could just give the background to this conversation and why this, because it wasn't just someone said, hey, let's have this conversation. There was a lot of lead up to it. Right. I think it helps to indeed complete the list of the participants because uh, we have an assembly of people who approach that very complex issue from very different perspectives. So uh, you had, of course, Walter Hanegraaf and uh, uh, Leanna Seif and myself, but uh, you also had uh, Henrik Bogdan, who uh, is uh, the co-editor of one of the first volumes who actually attempted to have a look at occultism from a global perspective, or what they call the global perspective. And you also had Egil Asprem, who uh, was uh, together with Kenneth Granholm, the latter could not be present, but Egil was one of the first uh, who wrote an article problematizing uh, Western as opposed to the Eastern and Western esotericism. And then, of course, you uh, had Marco Passi, who was, uh, I think, perhaps even the author of the first article who explicitly uh, dealt with that notion in 2010 in the context of the the Oriental Kabbalah in a theosophical context where you had a a shifting from, uh, if you want, a Western conception of Kabbalah to a more Eastern conception of Kabbalah very unclear what that is supposed to mean and that was that was exactly the subject of his article so very important input and there was of course the chair uh, Karl Bayer from Vienna who uh, was again very uh, pioneering in his approach to theosophy especially early theosophy and one of the very few people who were looking and who is still looking at the actual Indian side in that context so he published a voluminous work in, in 2006, if I'm not mistaken, might be nine, perhaps I'm twisting the number, yeah. that included an extensive discussion of the concepts of yoga, meditation, chakras, and so on. And, so on. and uh, that means that we had a very interesting setup there. So the reason why that happened, I mean, when we just had our chat before we started the interview, we were mentioning that Facebook discussion, but uh, that uh, is something that already was the outcome of uh, a longer or an ongoing situation. And on the one hand, we have in recent years an opening towards contexts that are not traditionally or considered Western, such as Islam, right. which is uh, why we had uh, Layana Saif in, in an Aswi context, uh, which is why you had her on the podcast and so on. So she's, uh, along with others like uh, Matthew Melvin Kushki, uh, representing this uh, Islamic perspective that was actively invited to the study of Western esotericism. And I think that's something very important to stress. Uh, then there is... Uh, of course, one of the two PhDs in Amsterdam, Briganko Mukhopadhyay, who comes from a Bengali Indian background and looks at theosophy in that context. So again, we have an active inclusion of someone who does not look at what could be considered a Western context in Europe or North America. At the same time, people were wrestling about 
the concept of Western. So you had those two articles by uh, Igor Asprem, Kenneth Granholm, who I mentioned, um, who most explicitly uh, to that point have said that we should rethink the notion from different perspectives. Igil had a more well, methodological perspective to it that's uh, revolved around comparatism. Uh, how do we compare things that evolve not necessarily in direct exchange with each other, but in analogy to each other. And then we had Kenneth Garnoem, who um, uh, discussed that from a more discourse theoretical uh, question that uh, addressed issues of power, orientalism, colonialism, and, and these things. And now, somewhat contrary to that development, I feel that the defense of the concept of Western that ensued was uh, not very substantiated, to be honest. So there seems to have been a majority of people, as I recall, saying, yeah, let's just drop the Western. There's no point in the Western. They all had different reasons, as you say, or, or not the reasons for this I, this position didn't always map 100% onto each other. But right. there was definitely at least a large consensus that this term is more problematic than it is useful. However, yeah. some people did step up. So Wouter um, spoke up for keeping the Western, but he, I would say, couched his reasons for wanting to do so, not so much in methodology or anything like that, but more in a kind of vision of making the West what it's supposed to be or something like that, like a kind of more grand civilizational mission, right? <laughs> if you know what I mean. Does that ring true to you? Well, I, th I think I, I would put that in, in a couple of more words, um, and perhaps it, it helps to understand, indeed, whether all those perspectives wanted to abolish the Western or not. So, uh, be, returning to Marco Passi, yeah. uh, the very beginning, if you want, uh, he concluded his article by saying that actually what is called Western should be called Christian. And I didn't see that he really followed up on that, but it is extremely significant to keep that in mind. And that is also the argument that I would actually make. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I changed my approach to that a bit, and it relates a lot to what you've just uh, hinted at. Uh, because in the very beginning, I actually said that we should not necessarily drop the Western, but we need to substantiate it. We need to address the problems, we need to reflect them, and we need to make clear why we should argue to use that term as a scholarly concept. And that is exactly what did not happen so far, I believe. Um, to return to the historical problem, and that would also be the angle that Walter Hanekhoff is suggesting in, uh, in his argumentation. If you want to historicize the notion, Western esotericism, then you end up, as always, in the 19th century. And in the 19th century, that specific term, whether in France, esoterisme occidental, or uh, within the context of the so-called hermetic reaction that uh, already in the 90s was extensively discussed by uh, scholars uh, such as Justin Godwin, Pat Devenay, and so on, so there's a lot of awareness of that. Uh, in that context, Western esotericism was polemically used to distance oneself from what was supposed to be an Eastern esotericism as most prominently represented by the Theosophical Society. Gotcha. So, now, can yeah. I stop you there? And can you flesh out this, this historical moment for people, for example, who might not know anything about the history of the Theosophical Society, important sure. as it is for, ironically, Western culture? Um, so what was going on there? Right. You know, I mean, until the, the second half of the 19th century, you did not have organizations that would call themselves esoteric or cult or something like that. Right. Um, you did have, of course, prehistories of that. You had Martinism. You had uh, a lot of examples that could be named now dealing with magic, magnetism. Uh, spiritualism started a bit earlier, which is always the big nemesis and the big problem for, for those uh, theosophists especially. But what then happened... Uh, and maybe I should also add that uh, I worked about Eliphas Levi, who in the 50s was the one to popularize the term occultism. But Levi is a good example because he is exactly not one of those 
who founded a society and right. uh, did not even establish a school to be precise. And he was turned into what he today is perceived as after his death, largely. So um, what happens in the 70s? So the, the is, founder of occultism, basically, is sort of how he's perceived. Sim simply speaking, yes. Yeah. Um, so what happens in the 70s, or in, in 1875 to be precise, is that uh, the Theosophical Society established uh, in, in New York, um, already a collaboration of very different uh, personalities and theosophists up to this day stress that there is no single uh, doctrine that they uh, represent. Actually, that's one of their points. You know, they don't want to uh, pose as uh, doctrinaires. But one of the big struggles after the establishment of the Theosophical Society is, you know, a demarcation from spiritualism especially, because most of the members prominently Blavatsky herself, uh, who is usually regarded as that founding, like that leading figure, um, were spiritualists or, or had been spiritualists. And, and we have, from the very inception on, a struggle for what is theosophy, what is esotericism, what is occultism. And, you know, when you look at the classical narrative, not even classical, it's something that uh, we find in Bautis' recent article, for instance, on globalization, is that um, esotericism then gets exported uh, into the world and the Theosophical Society is significant in that because just a couple of years after their establishment, they physically moved to India after they had uh, established contacts to Indian reformers. And in that Indian context, that is where they thrived and where they actually became a significant political force. Uh, well into the 1920s, actually. So, like, really significant, uh, to the point that Annie Besant, who was uh, director, uh, sorry, the president of the Theosophical Society, was elected the president of the Indian National Congress in 1917. So we are really not talking about something marginal here. Mm. Not to mention importance for the women's suffrage movement, the, uh, the movement for the availability of contraception and all kinds of other interesting social avenues that people don't necessarily associate with the Theosophical Society. Yes, yes, exactly. So there's uh, almost always a social reformist aspect to it, which is what I usually look at, right? Mm. Um, but um, the, the point that I want to get at is that theosophy and by extension also esotericism uh, and occultism, all these notions were not something fixed and homogeneous. When the Theosophical Society moved to India, no Western esotericism was exported to India, but the debates that were raging on about what it is supposed to mean were significantly influenced and, and, uh, and shaped by, for instance, Indians in the Indian context. And that is exactly the part that people so far have been reluctant to look at. There's now a change, as I already indicated. Um, there's uh, a growing awareness of it. But the argument for the defense of Western esotericism is completely ignoring that. And here I would like to return to that uh, polemical context, because the notion of Western esotericism was precisely a reaction to that precisely a reaction to that. And it is significant, just to wrap that up, that this notion, esoterismo occidental, made it into the foundation of our field through the work of Antoine Fer, who in his conceptualization of Western esotericism was very much uh, shaped by that French context. So we do not have, you know, big quotation mark, an innocent scholarly uh, concept that we are using to, to name our field, we are, we are using something that has a very precise, concrete, and highly polemical history, whose point it is to eclipse and reject the Eastern influences. Right. So let me sum, sum up what you've just said, if I can, and tell me if I'm getting it right. In the latter half of the 19th century, the Theosophical Society made this move to India, and it was a very influential uh, grouping, a huge membership as well. You also had arising people like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and even yeah. within that, people like Arthur Edward Waite, who yeah. were specifically saying, we have our own tradition opposed to this Eastern stuff, 
and right. we have the grail and we have the the Christian Kabbalah and we have alchemy and all this kind of stuff and re-embracing grimoire traditions, re-embracing certain elements from what you might call, I'd say, Western European esotericism and creating a new, new syntheses of various sorts and saying this is Western esotericism, something similar going on in France. And that term gets coined for this kind of formulation in opposition, would you say, largely to what's happening in the Theosophical Society? Well, that's an important factor of it. Uh, it's surely not exclusively like that. And uh, of course, I'm breaking things down brutally at this point. But uh, basically, uh, when we are talking about the history of the concept, Western esotericism, that is the, perhaps the, or probably the most significant aspect right. of it. And you also had this, you had this polemic within the Theosophical Society as well, right? Oh, yeah. You had people going, no, this is all Hindu stuff. We want to get back to the, the true Western roots and so on. Um, yes. So the term Western esotericism or the French equivalent thereof is not something that scholars coined to describe a historical reality, but rather a term that was already in play in late 19th century polemics within what we would call esotericism. Yeah that was then taken on, notably by Antoine Fèvre, to describe a historical reality. However, it's a loaded term. It comes to us loaded. Indeed, it does. And uh, a lot of terms do, obviously. Yeah. So that is something that is very important to point out. Uh, when I want to at least problematize, if not argue for the abolishment of the term Western, I do not want to say that it's not a real thing, again, in big quotation marks. Uh, many concepts that emerged at a certain point in history did have very real consequences, regardless of their, let's say, uh, ontological status. And the West is notoriously politically charged. Uh, it's notoriously polemically charged. It has, especially when we look at the 19th century, the 20th century, uh, a history that is intertwined with uh, colonialism, with uh, racism and all uh, related aspects that could be now named. And uh, that's you all can probably uh, come up with uh, in large amounts. And this is why it's important to note that, of course, there is something as the West that people debated, that people identified with, and they still are. But there's a major difference if I investigate that concept from a scholarly perspective or if I employ it as a hermeneutical term right. or even as an identity marker. Now, just to avoid misunderstandings, I'm not as naive to say that there can be something as a completely objective, neutral viewpoint that is apolitical. That is, uh, in my conviction, at least completely impossible. However, you can draw the line between uh, using a polemical concept and investigating it. Gotcha, gotcha. You've you've established some good reasons from from your perspective why this term should at least be um, looked at seriously. Another point of context, which I think is very interesting, which Egil raises in his article, and which uh, Wouter actually alludes to in his article as well, which is a, another point of a historical point in the evolution of the term, right. which is very significant for people to know about, which is that in the work of Fevre, in which we can include the first series of the journal Aries, or Aries, right? So 1985 to 1999, um, although he wasn't the only person editing this magazine, but he was a, a major important figure in it. Um, this journal, Arias, was the journal of esotericism. It wasn't of Western esotericism. And yes. it was explicitly religionist, as people in the field say, or another way of putting it was, it was devoted to high-quality scholarly work on aspects of what we would call Western esotericism, but very much in a kind of perennialist um, understanding that there is genuinely an esoteric truth and we are trying to lift the veil of Isis and this sort of thing. So it wasn't yes. a, a dry um, academic approach, which is attempting to be neutral. It's very much here we all are. We're esotericists. We happen to also be academics and we want to, you know, if we read an article on Paracelsus, we want it to be a good historically grounded article on Paracelsus. But we also think Paracelsus was a wise man, right? Um, mm. Fèvre changed his approach. He became much more interested in historicizing 
this material, much less, let's call it religionist, over time. And the second series of Aries, which was launched, published by Brill, took on the name Western esotericism. And this was specifically a move, historically, to try to historicize, to say we're not talking about some kind of universal ahistorical tradition, we're not talking about some um, perennial truth, we're not, ta we're not ta speaking from within these traditions, we're studying them from a historicist scholarly methodology. So another key point in the history of the term Western esotericism, it seems to me, is this point at which the term is adopted specifically for a kind of anti-religionist purpose to try to put the study of Western esotericism, to put the study of this, this thing on a sound scholarly footing alongside history of religions more generally. Yes. It's extremely important to point that out because that leads us to the major problems that are relevant for the ongoing debate. Which are? If you, if, if you look at the history of the field, then this process of adding the Western becomes very comprehensible. It's clear what the idea behind it was, but to stick to that with that argument means limiting your scope to the very, very minuscule faction of a tiny, tiny emerging field while not looking beyond it. So you are justifying the use of Western against that background that you just uh, addressed, but that only revolves basically around itself in a very, very little solar system whose sun at the uh, moment was called Antoine Fer. And my argument is that Beyond that field, in the last, well, not even 30 years, but uh, actually longer, 40 years at least, there had been vast and complex discussions that are relevant to the notion of Western, including the contexts that are relevant for the historical currents that are often included in Western esotericism, for instance, the Theosophical Society. And what can be objectively said is that those who today defend the term Western do not engage even superficially and not even uh, with like on the basis of a tiny fraction of that scholarship. So if you talk about the vast fields of uh, colonial history, imperial history, global history, post-colonial approaches, post-structuralist approaches, all these, these, these kinds of interconnected approaches that developed over the last 40 years, those approaches made very complex and very, very uh, convincing arguments that show that the term Western as a scholarly analysis, and here I point to what I said earlier, right, but the difference between the perspectives, but point uh, out that the, the notion Western is completely indefensible as a scholarly tool which again does not mean that, that it doesn't exist historically or that it is bad or good, because that is a reaction that you always uh, get. Uh, somebody says, well, what's wrong with the West? We have Bach and Kant, and yeah. uh, that, is, of course, that is, of course, completely missing the point. Right. Um, completely missing the point. And uh, here, please allow me to be a bit frank, because uh, it struck me as uh, very telling or the room of improvement, which in the field, that Walter Hanechaf's article on the globalization of esotericism manages to do without an even superficial engagement with any of the things I've been talking about. So I think we need to improve the arguments for defending the term Western if we want to keep it. And if not, then I do think 100%, as I said in the beginning, that it is much wiser to drop it altogether. Because if, if, imagine how this looks from the outside. And this leads me to another aspect, uh, which is also very relevant. And it's a very practical one that pertains to the status of the field, uh, the expansion of the field, and the perceived quality of the field. Uh, from an outsider perspective, if you see something, uh, that doesn't make a good impression, really. If you want to argue for, let's say, a further establishment and solidification of the field, it is of vital importance that you do not shut off yourself 
and I mean the field of Western esotericism, from the vast world beyond its very tiny room. If you do not even bother to engage with scholarship beyond Western esotericism, how could you even become aware of the problems related to Western esotericism? And then on a more practical level, how do you want to engage in a dialogue? How do you want to attract brilliant scholars from those fields? How do you want to institutionally establish yourself perhaps in the respective apartments and enter a dialogue with them? No, it's a complete self-marginalization and that has to stop. Sociologically, I wonder if someone could, 20, 30 years from now, write the history of the, the academic field of Western esotericism studies vis-a-vis um, -vis universities, which is a, at the moment basically limited to Paris and Amsterdam, but you know, brief, had a brief window in Exeter University as well. If yes. um, sociologically there is a certain hankering or a certain structural tendency toward a kind of... Um, hermetically sealed ha-ha mindset of, uh, you know, we, we all study um, secret societies and conspiracies and secret wisdom, and we tend to want to congregate with other people who are into that stuff. And so then our colleagues who study um, global trade or our co colleagues who study modernity or our colleagues who study uh, religion more generally, theology, you name it, um, sociology, culture, anthropology, we don't really talk to them because they're studying non-esoteric stuff and we're into esoteric stuff. Do you know what I mean? Well, I know what you mean, but um, I would say that a lot of us, at least a lot of us, if not anyone, if not anyone can make a very strong point uh, of saying, look, what you perceive as marginal is actually highly influential, at least in a certain context. Yeah. Uh, there are so many examples that every listener will be able to think of. Uh, we have mentioned the Theosophical Society, and here we have, uh, for instance, like to, to just return to the practical aspect, because the Theosophical Society is completely neglected, almost completely neglected, by those fields of global history and so on. Uh, Ulster, Hamel, Bailey, and so on, they wrote like two, three pages about that, mentioning it without evidently knowing anything about it. So this is exactly where we can come in and say, look, you are not looking at this. And this is the groundbreaking breaking work of Wouter to highlight the importance, the historical relevance of those uh, historiographically marginalized and rejected, as he calls it, contexts, figures, organizations, and so on, and, and demonstrate that we can make a very valid contribution to uh, an historical understanding of the respective contexts. Mm. You are not... You know, achieving the goal that I've been talking about, which is like highlighting the relevance beyond our own fields yeah. if you don't engage with other fields of study. And, you know, that is not just some, uh, you know, like, like savvy uh, move or so. I mean, as the examples that I've been talking about so far show, you can really have and you should have a different historical perspective on that. And, you know, the big problem is that um, the way that these impulses uh, have been taken up so far, and you hinted at that yourself uh, a while ago, um, is by basically framing it with identity politics. And that is a, a grave mistake. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Walter actually during that discussion, but also in his contribution to that uh, Hermes Explains volume, wrote that we have to you know, like reconstruct uh, the West and reform the West after it has been deconstructed by all those evil postmodernists. I'm uh, being a bit sarcastical now, I yeah. apologize for that. But that is basically the, uh, the narrative. But as Marco, as you remember, during that uh, discussion immediately replied... Marco Passi. Marco Passi, yes, sorry. That is a political agenda that he does not want to take part in, yeah. and I don't want to take part in. Yeah. Because here we have the separation between scholarship and identity politics. Yeah, so I feel like um, so much of this conversation is bouncing off against uh, Wouter Hanekhoff's work that we should I should invite him to do a, a reply. But um, but you also have, have pointed out the uh, importance of his work and the, the great contributions it's made. So we're going to call it even. Very much so. Um, well, yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't even say call it even because uh, the point is not uh, to, to diss uh, his scholarship. 
the, the reason why uh, it is so important to question his reply, and that is what we're talking about, his reply to this input, uh, is that his work has been extraordinarily important and path-breaking for the establishment of the field. Uh, so that is why yeah. it is important to have that dialogue. Yeah, we wouldn't bother questioning him if he weren't such a, a good scholar and uh, an important guy. So at the end of um, the panel at SWE, Andreas Kilcher, who is the head of the SWE, the president, I guess is his title. Yes. I'm not sure. He wasn't on the panel, but he, he, you know, there was questions and answers afterwards, and he was in the audience, and he, and he sort of said, in a move that surprised, I think, everyone, he said, you know, I think we probably should drop the Western, or words to that effect. He said, you know, I'm, I'm sort of convinced by these arguments. And um, I wonder if it, maybe, maybe this is irresponsible, well, this is irresponsible, but let's do some irresponsible speculation about the future. Always up for that. Yeah, good. Do you think this means that the field of Western esotericism is... Um, going to become the study of esotericism? Are we going to drop the, are we going to see people dropping the Western? I'm going to have to change my podcast name, which is a bit of a pain, but never mind. <laughs> well, uh, this is not a process that will be decided by a handful of people. So we will have to see where this whole discussion takes us to. Personally, I, uh, as I already hinted at several times or explained, uh, have, have come to the conclusion that dropping it would give us much a lot more uh, advantages than keeping it. Um, but, you know, it's funny that the only arguments that really, really came again and again are those arguments, well, we have to rename stuff now. I know. <laughs> I mean, that is that is such a weak argument. Actually, Marco uh, pointed that out himself. He's, he, was, he was saying, I'm going to make a bad argument now, but I'll make it anyway. And, you know... Have you heard something that convinced you to keep it? Me, myself? Yeah. Uh, no, I myself am not sup as invested in the, the question as, as many other scholars are, simply because my methodological savvy is not as rigorous as many other scholars out there. I'm kind of one of these people that just likes to read interesting stuff and... Although that's cool, but I mean, you you can take in arguments and Mm, see what people say, right? No, I think I would start from the point that the term is so loaded, and especially so loaded nowadays. If you if you remove yourself from the field of historical study and look at current political debates going on in the world on the internet. some of which are truly terrifying for those who remember the history of the 1930s, you know, like identity politics gone, super childish, super un... just ridiculous identity politics, right? That is that is utterly ahistorical, that has no savvy, no knowledge of what the terms it's using mean. So people say, the West, the West this, the West that, um, the West it's versus de- them. No, it's declining. It's decline is announced, is being announced for a solid 150 years now. Yeah, yeah. Well, and okay, so the, this, of course, it brings us to the work of Oswald Spengler, right? Yeah, the likes, yeah. Who wrote The Decline of the West back in whatever, the, between the wars. And this book was a big bestseller at his time, and it blew everyone's mind. And it is a farrago of a historical fantasy. It's very, it's very convincing and very kind of wonderful in a way but um a book a book which has had a huge influence on many a western esoteric thinker and also a huge influence on many a neo-nazi bonehead of various stripes to to use a very loose term if you know what i'm saying people who are like we are in decline and if only we could have some kind of national renewal stroke racial renewal stroke spiritual renewal we could somehow turn the the tide and get pure again, all this kind of, this sort of thinking. People love Spengler. Um, but Spengler is notorious in the writings of, let's say, historians who think that you need to give explanations for why things happen that aren't drawing on a kind of higher power. There is a kind of innate... I mean, he's, he's been criticized as being a mystic, right? So um, he's discovered the true law of history. He's, in a way, he's a bit like Fourier. He's discovered the true law of history. And uh, if you just understand the law of history that he has discovered, never mind why he knows it's true. He just does, okay? Then you will understand yeah. history. Yeah? 
Well, I mean, okay, you, you brought in Fourier, uh, who, is, who is one of the fathers of, of socialism, but what, what I was just about to uh, push you back a bit, although what you say is absolutely right, um, is that we should not leave the notion of the West to the right-wingers. And that is, a, that is a problem that I have uh, with a lot of the discourse that's going on, uh, especially in recent years. It's a mistake to assume that only right-wingers, and I'm talking about hard right-wingers, uh, are those who are in defense of the West or who should somehow claim ownership of the notion. I, I dig what you're saying. So let me let me go back to what I was saying before I yeah. digressed, um, as I want to do. So on the face of it, on. the term is hugely problematic, the West, only in part because of this all this identity politics that's swimming around right now. Just for that reason alone, it would be probably sensible to think, as historians, to think that maybe this, is, this term is going to cause more problems than it will solve. So... Should we drop it? Probably, yes. My personal take on things is, in terms of what we stu- what we tend to study, now you, for example, um, work a lot on India and its connections with what we might call well, European cultures. So colonial mm. India, for example, is, is something you study a lot, colonial and post-colonial. But the vast majority, if you were to map, if you were to create a kind of Venn diagram of geographically, where people study um, who work in Western esotericism, it would, you'd find some India there for sure, but you'd find a lot more, let's call it Eurasia, right? Concentrating on the Mediterranean region, but very much leading off into Iran, the Islamic heartlands. And yeah. of course, North America and uh, other colonial kind of outposts, Australia, New Zealand. And that being the case, I'm very convinced, maybe this isn't methodologically the most rigorous and sensible approach, but um, it kind of works for me with uh, Matthew Melvin Kuschke's approach. Look, look, there is a coherent, though extremely complex historical reality, which is something that we might usefully describe in shorthand terms as the Abrahamic Hellenic synthesis, right? So that's Jews, Christians, and Muslims with the legacy of things like Plato and the the Greco-Roman world at their fingertips and used as a philosophical and scientific vocabulary for explaining how the world works. And this, I mean, you don't have to call it the West, but you need a name for it. And why not call that the West? That also has the added benefit of reclaiming the idea of the West from people who want to say, for example, that the West is opposed to Islam on some kind of Mm -hmm. fundamental level. It's like, well, no, actually the Islam is definitionally the West. (laughs) And uh, if you want to look at the entire, what we call the Middle Ages, um, when Islam didn't even have a Middle Ages in any meaningful sense, they were kind of carrying the torch of this vaunted Western civilization that you're so proud of, while Western Europe was, for parts of the Middle Ages, kind of wallowing in filth and desperately trying to survive plagues and stuff like this. Well, which is also a cliche, but I I, I see what you say. Uh, I don't think, I mean, I totally see where that is coming from, and I'm very sympathetic to it. Uh, I just don't think that just extending the notion of the West is the right path to walk down, uh, Mm. especially because uh, it also is just an attempt to, you know, like claim a political category. And I I just don't think that's the the most constructive from a scholarly perspective way to pursue. Mm. Uh, You know, I I look at that by asking myself, how is it that the West was defined? And uh, we land in the 19th century crucially for that, because before that, that wasn't really uh, a significant category in in political discourse. And perhaps this is also where this can tie this in with the whole uh, Western esotericism debate and uh, the rejection of religionist approaches. Because very often there is the misconception and, and it really is a grave misconception that global means universal and that global approaches, uh, you know, bear the, the danger of perennialist perspectives. Gotcha. That is not the case. It's not the case. A global history approach or a set, uh, I, I don't know of a global history approach of any significance that says everything is connected. You know, what happened in that Himalayan village was somehow relevant for what a tailor in London did or something like that. It's not how the arguments go. Unless you're Spengler. 
<laughs> well, if, if we want to call I'm him a not, global historian. I'm not yet bald enough for that, but I, I can look very grumpy and I can put up a very uh, threatening German accent if you want. <laughs> but, um, yeah, bitte. No, that's, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> no, we'll skip that. We'll skip that. Uh, that's not the point. The point is to show that certain concepts and, and uh, the different historical contexts were not isolated or concepts emerged in interconnectedness with other contexts that were not geographically restricted to what by any meaningful way can be labeled the West. And this is exactly what you were talking about. Because clearly we, we are here confronted with a shared historical uh, heritage where people struggling to demarcate themselves from each other uh, were creating these categories like West to, to make such a demarcation and eclipse the historical developments that defy easy identity categories. And that is the reason. And that is exactly what global history approaches and related approaches want to unravel without claiming that uh, everything is the same and there is an esotericism that we can look at everywhere. You know, uh, Henrik, uh, Henrik Bogdan actually made the argument during the discussion that the use of esotericism by us could bear the danger of a kind of neo-imperialist or neo-colonial gesture to impose a Western term on other contexts. And it's a fair argument. I see where it's coming from. Yeah. However, the very point of the concepts that I'm talking about is to give a voice of those who are normally not heard, although they were hugely influential, for instance, those Indians in the Theosophical Society, and to recognize their agency, their role, their ideas and historical backgrounds cannot by any reasonable standard be regarded as bearing the danger of neo-colonialism. And it also cannot be regarded as a return to perennialist approaches because we can be more sophisticated than that. We have so many brilliant scholars in the field, very exceptional, brilliant scholars who are courageous enough to look at contexts that are very often neglected by most other historians. And you know, they are capable of avoiding a neo-perennialism or neo-imperialism. But in order to do that, theoretically and methodologically sound, you will have and really will have to look beyond the borders of the study of Western esotericism. Mm. So beyond those borders, there is, of course, another giant uh, methodological monster lurking, which is what the hell do we mean by esotericism in the first place, right? And various yeah. scholars have their own approaches to this. I, I myself quite like the sort of thing you see in Koku von Stuchard's work and uh, Hugh Urban, like this sort of um, looking at the esoteric as a sort of speech act. That that personally is very effective for me. And then you would say, so for example, you could look at something like later Taoism in China and say, okay, this is totally esoteric in the sense that these people are talking about secret wisdom. They're talking about the nature of the Tao, which cannot be spoken, all this sort of stuff, which is, which is esoteric in a rhetorical sense, you know. But aside from that, I find it very difficult to pin down exactly what we mean, what we would mean by a, a rigorously definable esotericism. When you think of esotericism, <laughs> you tend to think of really cool, weird uh, engravings with lots of funny details and um, wizards and robes, Latin words, maybe some Latin in there, you know, this is esotericism, but and that's a, probably not a conversation for now. That's a conversation for another time. But it's like, if you get rid of the Western, great, that's cool. I can dig it. Then you're left with esotericism. So in Egil's article, he does a very good job of anatomizing some of the history of the term that we've been talking about in in the field. He doesn't go back as far as you do to the 19th century and the actual debates about Western esotericism within what you might call the sort of esoteric or occult uh, fraternities and stuff like this. But he does that. He also looks at it from methodological grounds and says, you know, this term is, is fraught with many problems. But he doesn't touch on then the problem that arises when you're left with just esotericism. That's not simple either. It's not like, oh, great, we've got rid of the problematic Western. We can all agree on what esotericism is. So let's go forward in, 
in peace and brotherhood. That problem is huge. Well, that's absolutely true. A hundred percent what you're saying. It depends on, on your approach. You know, I'm, I'm personally super open-minded. What, what I'm calling for is not, you know, like a homogenous definition or like a, a kind of approach that you should have to that question. I have mine, which is a very historical approach. Um, uh, Egil's argument was uh, more like um, like ideal, typical. You're, you're establishing certain topologies, and, and that's also a fair way to proceed. Uh, the, the point is, if you draw up a sophisticated, well-argued methodology and then an argument uh, and then a theoretical backup for that, then why not look comparatively at different uh, historical contexts that are not evidently historically connected and then investigate if it makes sense or not to call it esoteric or esotericism? Why not? It's the point is that you have to put on the table a solid scholarly, well-argued piece that people can criticize, that they can agree with, and so on. Um, personally, I would not uh, follow this uh, typological approach or a phenomenological approach, which also has absolutely uh, its justification. Um, what I was saying earlier is a historical argument to abolish the Western. Um, how to move on is not an answer that anybody should give uh, by herself or by himself, but that should be uh, a set of suggestions and, and uh, arguments within an ongoing scholarly exchange. Uh, but you know the foundation of all those perspectives, and that is what I was quite frankly criticizing earlier, is that you have to come up with that theoretical foundation. And that is another thing that people tend to confuse, you know, what does theoretical mean? If we investigate anything as scholars, we have to ask ourselves first and foremost the question, how can I know about my subject? That is an epistemological question. How can I know about the stuff that I'm looking at? And if you then call for the abolishment or at least the reduction of theory with the argument that people should return to the sources, then that is missing the point. Because, of course, there is sometimes the tendency uh, that people, you know, lose themselves in those theoretical abstractions and neglect solid old school philology that I very much advocate. But, you know, you cannot just listen to sources. You are asking questions to sources. And you have to ask yourself and you have to reflect upon why you are asking those questions, out of what context, and so on and so on. And that is where theory comes in. You have to be aware of that. So uh, that is a, a, a bit complex answer to your question. But I do have uh, the confidence that uh, as long as you do what we as scholars should be doing, then you can make very different arguments to define esotericism or study it or look at it in very different contexts. Mm. But you have to back it up. Right. All this discussion of, of theory and um, go back to the sources and philology is, um, it's very easy for someone like me to fill in the blanks of what you're talking about from concrete instances. I wonder if you could give an example. So let's say, take the Theosophical Society since that's something you work on. So one thing you could do is say, okay, there's been a lot of rubbish written about the Theosophical Society. We have to go back and read the documents. So then you have to go read Isis Unveiled and uh, all the works by Blavatsky and then a bunch of letters and then a huge, a huge corpus of stuff that was written by the, the Theosophical Society. But then what you're saying is that itself is not enough. You can't just describe what Madame Blavatsky wrote in Isis Unveiled and kind of give a précis of it and be like, okay, the historical work is done. You then need to ask the question, what is interesting about this stuff? Is that what you're saying? And then why do I find this interesting? Why is it illuminating um, to look at this per particular... So the importance of the theosophical movement for, let's say, late 19th century, early 20th century social changes in European society, right? 
Well, first, I would like to stress that uh, the old school quotation mark um, scholarship on the Theosophical Society is not rubbish. The work of Devenay, Godwin, Gomez and, and the likes uh, is incredibly useful and incredibly valuable. Where I would level criticism is that they do look, and this sounds very cliched, but it's what it is. They do look at white Europeans doing stuff. Mm. And that's is not rubbish, you know, it's it's not bad scholarship, but it sheds light on a part of the story. And I argue that uh, shedding light on a broader part of the story gives us insights into a more comprehensive understanding of the history of the Theosophical Society. So what I argue is not that we should drive a wedge between those who study theosophy in English-speaking European, North American, uh, and other parts, you know, I mean, we haven't even talked about the problem of, of Latin America. We haven't even talked about the problem of Africa, you know. I mean, all those things, uh, you know, the populations within what is usually uh, considered the West, people of color, how, how represented are they in the history of esotericism? You know, mm. we have to expand our our mindset and our scholarly uh, set of tools and, and concepts, approaches to uh, to develop a more complex understanding. And this is not about a struggle between postmodernism and uh, old school scholarship or something like that. Mm. It's something that every single one of us will benefit from because we will make the relevance of the stuff that we do much clearer. We substantiate our concepts, our tools significantly, and we open ourselves up for dialogue with disciplines that are, you know, a bit larger than us. Right. Well, Julian Struber, that is a, a ringing manifesto-like statement, which is probably as good a place as any to to end this conversation. It's been, it's been really, really helpful for me to organize my own thinking about this ongoing debate. So hopefully listeners will have got some idea about the origins of this term Western, how the term Western and esotericism first met up, um, in what context that happened, how that then evolved and became a scholarly construct, and the current state of play, at least in one corner of our very narrow field, as to whether we should keep the Western or not. And um, with some kind of view to the future. So thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Much appreciated. And uh, stay esoteric. <laughs> you do the same.